So I want to pick up again where, well, I want to pick up and kind of take what I did last week a little further um, down a direction, but just to paint a picture of where we have been. We have been on the same theme for about two years. I don't know if you realise this. Um, This theme of taking ground. Let's pull right back for a second. You're right there, babe? I was just moving the... Oh, okay. Just opening the Red Sea or the Black Sea of microphones and stands. Um, If we pull right back, our call as believers is to bring heaven to earth. Really simply, yeah? Now, does all of earth look like heaven yet? No, it doesn't. Therefore, we have a commission to take ground. So taking ground looks like making more of earth look like heaven. That, that's the really big picture stuff. That's the global domination, you know, almost as big picture as we can get. We are created to make earth look like heaven. In an individual sense, so that's what taking ground looks like in a, in a big picture sense. In an individual sense, taking ground looks like you becoming more of who God has created to, you to be and you demonstrating the character and nature of God as putting you on the earth. Is that a good idea? Anyone up for that? Okay. Anyone want to work, walk further into their destiny, into the fulfilment of the prophetic words over your life, become everything that you were created to be? Anyone up for that? Okay, this is good. I'm in the right place. Awesome. We have some agreement. That's taking ground in an individual sense. And as we've navigated through the last couple of years, we have kind of flipped and switched between taking ground in us and taking ground through us. So we've done lots of work on taking ground in us as a family, in us, in our own hearts. We've also done quite a bit around taking ground out there when we talked about the ecclesia and the place of the church in bringing heaven to earth. Right now, we're back on the taking ground in us, just to give everything that we're doing a context. And a whole lot of you did Elijah House a couple of weeks ago. A whole lot more of you did it a couple of months ago. And I think now nearly all of us who have been with us for a while, nearly, yeah, 80, 90%, can't count past four. So, you know, it's a high percentage. Um, that's all you need when you're a musician. You only need four. Because if it's in six, eight time, you can go one, two, three, one, two, three. Is it? Anyway, um, about three of us thought that was funny. Actually, I didn't think it was that funny either. I'm thinking, why am I saying this? <laughs> Moving right along. Um, what was I talking about before that? Four, four time, counting to four. What's that? 90. 90, that's the percentage of people. I knew there was a reason I was talking about numbers. So a whole lot of us have done um, Elijah House, which is about giving us some models and tools and language around the journey of the heart to help us cooperate with the healing power of God. Where I talked a little bit about uh, last week, yesterday, what day is it? Last week was the idea that emotions are data. And I want to unpack that a little bit more and kind of give a foundation for what I mean, both from a biblical perspective, but also from a bit of a how am I created neuroscience perspective. So I'm going to start in Psalm 139. Did you like that? That's good. I, I did that just for you, Martha. That was, that was just for you. I'm glad you liked it. So Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14 says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. 
Now, that whole psalm is like unbelievably amazing and you could sit there for a month or two and still not plumb the depths of everything that that psalm has to say. What I want us to get the idea of is we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that includes our emotional realm. So when God fearfully and wonderfully made you, he designed you with emotions that are actually meant to help you, that are actually meant to serve you. How many of you have ever struggled with anything ever in your life at all? Yeah, yeah. No, never? Oh, lay hands on me. <laughs> My hand is way up. <laughs> Better say, if your hands are not up, how many of you are married? <laughs> so you would have experienced some emotions, all really lovey-dovey and fluffy and, oh, and some others as well. <laughs> Boxing gloves. Whenever we get stuck, <laughs> Deb's going, oh, this is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Her emotions are going crazy. Hopefully this will help you, babe. <laughs> uh, if you've ever struggled or battled with anything, you know what it's like to get emotionally stuck. And most of the time we get stuck somewhere in our life, it involves a whole series of negative emotions that we're trying hard to pull ourselves out of, but are really struggling to do that. And so we get up in the morning and kind of feel like, Bleh, meh. They're emotions. <laughs> and whether you know it or not, you always behave out of your emotions. You're actually wired that way. From a pure neuroscience perspective, it is impossible to have a thought that is not fueled by, surrounded by, and driven by emotion. No matter how logical you think you are. Now, I do a lot of this stuff with engineers which is hilarious because they think they have no emotion. And if you didn't understand neuroscience, you could be forgiven for agreeing with them. There's not that many engineers in the room, is there? We've got... Yeah, yeah, okay. okay. But it's actually, unless you have some kind of traumatic injury to the brain or there is this little lobe that sits between your neocortex and your limbic brain, kind of in behind there, called the orbitofrontal cortex, unless you have kind of had that severed, your emotion is very, very involved in everything that you do. And if your emotion is not involved in everything you do, you literally can't make a decision. Study was done on a guy, and this was done on multiple people, but there was this one guy whose name was Elliot, uh, written by um, a neuroscientist called Antonio Damasio, who had a tumour on that part of his brain called the orbitofrontal cortex. And what that does is it integrates emotional information into your reasoning and logic. They thought, their hypothesis was with this guy that because his emotional realm was disconnected from his logical realm, that he would make perfect decisions because he would be unclouded by emotion. Some days I'm like really jealous. Like that sounds like a really good thing. Unclouded by emotion, I can make perfectly logical, rational decisions. What they found was that he couldn't even decide between a blue and a black pen. <laughs> That's you today. Okay. You can select it on that thing, though, can't you? Yeah, that's okay. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, every thought that you have is infused by, surrounded by, and empowered by emotion. There is so much more I could go into. But what I want us to understand is that your emotional realm is fearfully and wonderfully designed by God. 
with purpose, with cause, with effect. And if we can start to understand how we are designed in this realm, we can cooperate a whole lot more with the healing power of God in our heart. When we don't understand, we often end up working against the very healing processes that God wants to put in us. So I want to take us on a, on a brief but hopefully interesting journey into how our emotional world is designed. Now, little pragmatic announcement. Over the next two Sundays, if there is 10 or more people that want to dive into this a whole lot further, then after church, we are going to, you know, like we did those intercession groupy things and the, the prophetic stuff, all that we did after church in the rooms over there. If there is 10 or more people that want to do this, I will do some much more pragmatic stuff to unpack this for you. But you're going to have to let me know. I'm going to put a thing up on Facebook tonight. Um, that'll be like an event invite and you're going to need to sign up to that. And if there's less than 10 people, I'm going to do it later when there's 10 or more. If you want to dig into this realm of emotional intelligence um, and understanding how God has designed it, where you are strong and weak, because emotional intelligence actually has eight different facets to it. And we can be an absolute rock star in one and, and completely deficient in another. And the interplay of those two can pull us into really deep, complex situations that the weakness that we have ends up tripping us up. That's like, but I can see this so clearly. Why, does, why do I trip up when I'm over there? That's because you're strong in one and not so strong in another. And we can actually measure this. That's another story. But if you're interested in that, feel free to ask me, like, what are we going to do? What's that going to be about? You're welcome to ask all of that. Um, but if you want to dive deeper into this and want to understand your emotional realm and how to grow in that, if you're a leader, a husband, a wife, a child, um, if you're a human, if you have a beating heart and can breathe, you need this. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. So keep an eye on our Facebook page tonight because I'm going to put, put an event invite up and you can um, sign up that way. Where I want us to understand is that our emotional realm is fearfully and wonderfully designed by God. I, said, I made the comment last week that emotions are data. They're like lights on a dashboard that are telling us what's going on underneath, on the dashboard of a car that's telling you, hey, something's going wrong in your engine underneath. What I want to give you will explain that a little bit further. Now, how many of you have seen this movie, Inside Out? Okay, if you haven't, it is, uh, you have to see this movie. It is compulsory. Um, do you remember these five characters? Yes. So who's this one? Joy, fear, anger, love that guy. Disgust, sadness, very good. So happiness, in pure science terms, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust. Any idea why they chose those five? They're all prime. Who said that? Oh, yeah, they are all primary emotions. Anyone got any idea what we mean by a primary emotion? You use those to make others. It's kind of, kind of, yeah. What, what did you say? They're the main ones. Oh, brilliant, genius! You've clearly got good genes. Mine have almost got holes in them. What were you saying, Eilish? What are you saying? I'm Kidding. So Working with. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'm happy about something, yeah. So you're happy about something, um, and there's like a whole list of other emotions that you can use to describe what that is. So it's like. Yep. It is, it is. 
Okay, so let me go. From a pure science perspective, there's two things that make something a primary emotion. One is that there is a universal cause. I'm going to unpack that in just a second, and that's when you're going to see how emotions are data. The other is that they have survival value. So a universal cause means the same thing triggers that emotion, whether you're in deepest, darkest Africa, downtown New York, or beautiful Rouse Hill, the same thing triggers anger. The same thing triggers sadness. The same thing triggers happiness. And in fact, if you want to really dive a little bit deeper, all of those emotions, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, disgust, surprise, contempt, and keep going, they all look exactly the same on a face. Again, whether you're in deepest, darkest tribal Africa and have never been to an emotional intelligence course, or you are the smartest you know, um, neuroscience person in the world, anger looks the same on a face. Disgust looks the same on a face. Fear, surprise, all of those look exactly the same on a face because those emotions are neurologically wired into you for a purpose. Now, anger. Let's start with anger. Why did I start with anger? I know why I started with anger, because it's one that we're fairly familiar with, whether we're guys or girls. We are familiar with this emotion called anger. Anyone got any thoughts as to what is, and don't cheat anyone who's heard me say this before, which I don't know if it's that, that many, what is the universal cause of anger? What triggers or causes anger? Fear. Pain? Fear? Now, fear is another one of the primary emotions. Say that again. Block goal. What were you saying, Grant? When you want yeah, when you want something met. So in pure and simple terms, the universal cause of anger is a block goal. <laughs> you read it in the five love languages. Nice work. Well played. So if I am angry, one of the things that I can know is that there is a goal that I have that I'm in some way feeling like there is impeded progress toward. Now, frustration is part of the same cluster, but it's just a lower intensity. Whereas rage, also part of the same cluster, but the high, is the highest intensity, like fury and rage are the highest intensity emotions in the anger cluster. Frustration's lower level, mildly miffed, slightly peeved, through to meh, dropsies. That's anger. What about sadness? What is the trigger of sadness? I heard someone say it. Loss, exactly. Loss. I've lost something. Whether that's a human, a family member, or something that's of value to me, sadness is triggered by loss. What about happiness? Australia winning the cricket is a big part of that for me. But what is that? Achievement of... Of a goal, exactly. So it's progress toward or success in accomplishing a goal is the universal cause of happiness. Fear, universal cause of fear, other than me first thing in the morning. Threat, threat. precisely. We're on fire, baby. Threat, something I perceive is threatening. Now, it doesn't have to be a real threat. It only has to be a perceived threat. So if I think the ball of fluff on the ground is a spider, I'm going to run really, really fast in the opposite direction. Actually, I'm getting better. You're not quite yet, are you? <laughs> if I think the shoelace is a snake, let me tell you, I'm going to be running a whole lot faster. It only has to be a perceived threat, but fear is triggered by the perception of threat. What about disgust? Disgust. 
That's exactly it. It's offense. Something is offensive. Yeah. So disgust is the result. Offense is the cause. Now, it can be about, if it's about things like objects, pardon the expression this close to dinner, it's like blood, poo, pee and vomit when they've exited the body. Because we're all full of it right now. Sorry. <laughs> but because it hasn't exited the body, it's not disgusting. But for some of you who are much more visceral, visual and visceral, you're feeling it already because you're imagining it outside the body and you're feeling disgust. That's a pleasure. You're welcome. Anytime. All right. So they are the five primaries. Now, some say there's six primaries, surprise being the other one. What, what's the trigger of Surprise. Something unexpected, precisely. Um, some add contempt in there, but I would tend to disagree because contempt is kind of a blend between disgust and superiority. Um, but at least five, some say six. Did you want me to get out of the way so you can actually take a photo of the slide? You got it? All right, nice. So that is the universal cause. Now, I mentioned survival value. So tell me fear. How does fear have survival value? Lions? <laughs> Don't want to expand on that at all, Matt? Lions, he said. Best not to pull their tail. Okay, lions is, is, is a good one. I typically use the, the illustration because a lot of our primitive um, nature is designed so that when we're out hunting for food, let's imagine a great big bear appears with a bib on and a knife and fork and it's looking at me as if I'm food. At that moment in time, my life is under threat. And what is the emotion of fear doing for me? So it is protecting me. How? It's telling you to run like heck or tear the bear apart, which is the fight or flight. So while fear in the church is this thing that we stand against and we rebuke and we push down and we push away, in a primitive sense, fear is actually there to keep you alive. In other words, the emotion of fear alerts you that something is wrong. It's a light on the dashboard going, eh, eh. unless you take action, something's going to blow up or get chewed up in the case of the lion or the bear. Um, anger. How can anger have survival value? So it gives you energy to pursue the goals being blocked. Definitely. Now, put that into a, some kind of life-threatening situation. Let's say... I am from here to somewhere over there away from my child and I see someone try to take my child. There's going to be some... <laughs> it might be Josh trying to take my child. No. <laughs> if they're trying to take Josh, I say good luck to them because they're not going to get real far. <laughs> um, but yeah, if they're trying to take my young child, there are going to be emotions that come up in me that give me courage and energy to do something that I wouldn't normally do, which would be to run the heck after someone and tear them apart limb from limb. Survival value. Happiness then rewards us for the, for the pursuit of good things. So all of these emotions have survival value, but then they also have a specific cause that determines how we individually experience them. Any thoughts as to what that specific cause might be? In other words, what would determine the size of my anger, for example? The importance of... Of the goal, exactly that. So the specific cause of all of these is how important is this thing to me? So I remember um, a friend of Deb's years ago, 
Um, it was the first time the Sydney Swans had ever won a premiership. Now, it's not cricket, so I don't care that much, but it is a good story. So the Sydney Swans won the premiership for the first time. He is sitting watching the grand final in this kind of alfresco kind of Queensland room at the back of his parents' house. He's as tall as me, tad wider. The final siren goes and he jumps up and goes, and puts his fist through the ceiling. Okay, that is very high level happiness. And the thing, and now I, I remember where I was when that happened. I was out gardening two houses ago and listening to it in my, in my ears on the radio. And I'm like, yeah, cool, awesome. And he was like, Pfft. the difference is the Sydney Swans is like his team. It's his whole identity is attached to the, that team. So it's very important to him. Same stimulus, very different amount of happiness because of how important that was to him. If I had, let's imagine I had a $2 big pen. You know, the ones that you get, if you go to any kind of workshop, they're the free ones that people give out because no one really cares whether you take them or not. So let's imagine I had a $2 big pen and I lost it. How much do you think that might measure on the Richter scale? Yeah, but they're kind of a dime a dozen. I can go get another one real easy. It's a pen. It might be a minor frustration at most, really. Now, Frosty, I don't know if you remember this, but back at our old building in Annengrove Road, I remember I was, as usual, the last person to leave because I'd been talking too much. And um, as I'm going out of the building, I remember there was a pen on the floor. It looked kind of old, but I thought, oh. so I picked it up and then I realised it was this really nice fountain pen. I thought, okay, someone's going to want that. Um, so I you know, popped it in my bag, plopped off home, popped it on my desk next to me. I get a text message from Mr. Frost, um, sounding a tad concerned. <laughs> Even though it was a text and you can't hear it, it just the vibe, you know, the vibe of the thing was a little concerned. Hey, mate, by any chance, did you pick up a, a fountain pen at church tonight? Which I said, yeah, it's right next to me, <laughs> um, right here. Now, how relieved did you feel at that moment in time? Very relieved. Reason? It was still a pen, but this was a pen given to you by your dad, which has incredible emotional significance to you for a whole lot of reasons. Now, both of those instances are a pen, but the perception of loss... The level of perceived sadness should that have eventuated between the big pen and the pen given to him by his dad were worlds apart because the level of importance is very, very different. Does that make sense? Now, sometimes people tell me, I have no idea what I value. I have no idea what matters to me. And all I say is tell me about a time when you experienced some really strong emotions because your heart actually knows. A time when you got really, really mad. That is a piece of data that says something is important to you and you feel blocked on that. Someone walks up to you screaming wildly, yeah, this could happen at work. Someone walks up to you at your desk, absolutely white hot angry. What can you know at that moment in time? They're feeling blocked. So if I want to bring their anger down, telling them go away and come back when you're in a sane mood is going to block them further and probably send their anger way up. Whereas saying... Okay, something's really getting in your way. Sit down, talk to me. Let's see if we can work something out. I'm now perceived as one who is removing the block. Their emotion goes down. Is this making sense? Okay. Your emotions have been perfectly designed by God to keep you alive, to keep you behaving around things that are important to you, whether you know it or not. So any time, I mean, how many of you have ever experienced a really strong emotional reaction to something and later kind of gone, what, what, what was that? Why, why is it so? 
you experienced a piece of data that you need to interrogate because it's speaking to you about something that is really important to you. And your, your cognitive brain may be unaware of it, but your heart knows. Are we making sense so far? Okay. So, emotions are data, not commands. We talked about this a little bit last week. Emotions are data, they're not commands. For those who weren't here, I I gave the illustration of um, a guy up at uh, the tribe, Byron Bay. I was up there with him a few weeks back. And every time Phil Mason talked about the father heart of God, this guy just got angry. He just got this this high level frustration heading into anger every time Phil would talk about the father heart of God. And he he just wanted to get up and walk out. Now, if he treated emotions like a command, he would have just got up and walked out and gone, oh, this is rubbish. I'm so sick of hearing about this. It's all he ever talks about. Rubbish. He was smart enough, and this was before we'd done the workshop, um, he, he was smart enough to go, hmm, why am I having this reaction? In other words, I'm experiencing a piece of data. Those of you who have done Elijah House would have heard, this, heard the statement, where there is fruit, there's a root. Exactly the same concept. Where there is fruit in terms of I'm having some strong emotions, there is a root of that. There, it's a piece of data that's trying to tell you something. If you treat it like a command, you'll blindly follow it. If you understand that it's a piece of data and not a command, therefore, don't judge it. In other words, don't say that's a good or a bad emotion. Because actually, there's no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. There may be emotions that are ineffective for a given moment. Okay, if I'm about to get up in front of a board and I need to make a presentation that will inspire them to take a risk for the future and I'm really angry and frustrated because of something else that's going on in my world, is that emotion helpful for that moment? No. No. Is it wrong? No, No, it's a sign that something else in my world I feel blocked on. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not effective for that moment. So part of emotional intelligence is knowing what emotion is effective for what goal. We'll do more of that in the next couple of weeks. But there's no such thing as a good and bad emotion. And unfortunately, I think this is where us as the church broadly have not always done emotions a good service because we've kind of said those emotions are good, those emotions are bad. And if you're feeling bad ones, then you're being negative and you need to push that away and come in in faith. No, we don't judge them. We need to interrogate them. We need to find out what they're there for. Don't know if I said this last week. I've talked about this a few times the last few weeks. I can't remember where I've said what, but I remember talking to someone who battled um, chronic depression for a really long time, most of his adult life, in fact. And one of the things he described to me, and this is one of the pieces of fruit, was I wake up in the morning and I just feel really, really flat. And I said, well, what what do you do with that? And he goes, well, I just kind of get up and I start to pray. And and they're all really good things. I'm not anti-prayer. I think most of you know me. I'm very pro that. But I said, and I said, I just try and push through it. It takes me a while and then I can kind of push through it and get on with my day. I said, okay, full cred to you for, you know, making some choices and not living under it. But I said, what if we tried a different strategy? When you get up in the morning, you actually engage that flatness and go, what are you trying to say? What, 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 is, what is actually going on in my heart where, where that is the emotional fruit? And what he discovered was a huge amount of really intense grief in his life that wasn't fully processed. Actually, probably wasn't even half processed. 
was largely the reason behind that. But if we don't interrogate the emotion and we just go, no, I need to push through in faith, and then we don't actually find out what's really going on in our heart. And all the stuff we talked about last week about painting the target for the waves of healing, we paint it somewhere over there when we need to be, when we need to be going, okay, that is the data I'm experiencing. They are the places where my heart needs healing. All right. I want to talk about some common mistakes that keep us stuck. I'll just take a moment to take in that picture there. That's what you call a mistake, okay? It's not a mistake yet, but it is certainly heading swiftly in that direction. It certainly could get him lots of hits on YouTube, could make some money out of it, but for the sake of our purposes, let's call that a mistake. So I want to talk about three common mistakes that keep us stuck. So number one is I can't put words to emotions. In other words, I don't have the language for what's going on. Now, when that gets to an extreme version, there's actually a, a, a scientific name for it called alexithemia. Um, and the health outcomes attached to that are incredibly poor. Um, in other words, people who can't put words to feelings suffer all sorts of physical illnesses in their body. Now, at a really basic level, when my neocortex, which is the, the higher reasoning centre of my brain, can't put a word on what I'm, my heart is feeling, it feels out of control and anxious. Now, anxiety is, it's a huge topic out in society, and so it should be. We should be talking about this. One of the things that's often not understood about anxiety is it's a condition of the emotions before it's a condition of anywhere else. And there's four things that drive anxiety. One of them is I can't put words to feelings. And so my neocortex, my higher reasoning centre of my brain, the one that we have that dogs don't, which is why we don't chase parked cars all the time, <laughs> most of us, um, <laughs> <laughs> our higher reasoning centre feels out of control and anxious until it can give what's going on in here a name. So when I can't put words to emotions, I, have, I, I build anxiety into my system because I feel out of control. And one of the parts of anxiety is I essentially I feel out of control. I don't have the resources to deal what's in front of me. So that's one of them. So one of the things we, I often work, and this is especially with guys, is... We need to develop our emotional vocabulary. Now, for us, us white guys in particular, we have... Actually, let me pull back for a sec. In the English language, there's some 230-something words that describe emotions. And there's probably a whole lot more than that, but at the very least, there's about 230-something that we, we can all agree these are words that are actually attached to an emotion. Do you need a bucket? You all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, the average white male knows about three. <laughs> so it's either I'm awesome because my team won, I'm angry, which is an acceptable emotion for a guy typically because it feels powerful, more on that in a moment, um, or yeah, I'm right. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds fair, right? It's like, what else do you need? Which is why male anxiety and depression is so high. Because we, it's not the only reason, sorry. It's one of, the, one of the contributing factors because we don't have the words to describe what's going on in here. So one of the things I often do, if I'm working with a guy who cannot put words to feelings, I've got a deck of cards that have got emotion words all over them. I just lay them out in front and go, okay, let's pick the top three or four. And usually when they're prompted, they can pick them. 
But the process of doing that actually helps to develop an emotional vocabulary. Because when I develop the right vocabulary, I can name it, then I can apply a strategy to that emotion. More on that in a second. I have a whole lot more to say on that one because in one of the reasons we worship in church is because music is a language of the heart. Yeah. Now, if, if the worship experience is something that you tend to struggle with and think, can we get on with the teaching and the rest of the message, there's a fair chance that you are in some way disconnecting yourself from heart language and trying to avoid the stuff of the heart. Now, look, I know that not everyone's musical preference is the same. There's all of that. But there is this thing of even when the music isn't my preferred taste in an atmosphere of worship, I can at least kind of open up my heart and connect with God despite. Whereas if I have this thing of anything in the heart is like, can we just get on with the stuff that I can think about is a sign that I'm trying to lock myself out of my own heart and possibly I'm afraid of what's going on in here and don't have the language to describe it. One of the answers is if we can develop an emotional vocabulary, we can start to get breakthrough. Now, sometimes we do have the vocabulary, but we pick the wrong one. This is naming incorrectly. This is mistake number two. Because naming incorrectly, if I name, for example, and this is a classic one, if I name sadness as anger, and us guys are really good at this, we confuse sadness and anger. The strategy to deal with those two emotions is very different. The strategy to deal with anger, if anger is a blocked goal, I either need to reevaluate the goal or I need to reevaluate my strategy to get to the goal. Yeah? And especially long-term frustration, it actually needs a, a healthy voice. Yeah, Paul didn't say, don't get angry. He said, in your anger, don't sin. He actually assumed that we would get angry because anger is a normal human emotion because life doesn't always go perfectly and we get frustrated, we get annoyed, we get angry. But the strategy to deal with sadness, which is loss, is very different because the goal is gone. So we can't use an anger strategy to deal with sadness because the goal is gone and the only way to deal with sadness is to grieve. And we see Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn for you will be comforted. So the the prerequisite to receiving comfort is you actually need to mourn. That's right there in scripture. But for guys in particular, where we struggle with vulnerability, we struggle with feeling weak, sadness feels horribly vulnerable. Therefore, we're more comfortable saying, I'm really angry about this, because at least anger feels powerful. But I like when Sandra Selma Kirsten was here, and I think I said this last week, um, one of the statements she made, which I love, is that anger is a great stink finder because we use it as a cover for just about everything else because it feels powerful. It has an energy about it that mobilizes me and makes me feel strong. But often for us guys, it's a cover for the fact that I actually feel horribly weak and vulnerable in this moment in time, but I don't like feeling horribly weak and vulnerable, so I mask it. But when I do that, we stay stuck. Naming incorrectly leads to using the wrong strategy, and when I use the wrong strategy for an emotion, I stay stuck. And then not naming or identifying all of the emotions present. So one of the aspects of emotional intelligence is that emotions have blends. 
In other words, I can experience more than one emotion at the same time. So let's imagine I'm about to jump out of a perfectly good plane with nothing more than a big bed sheet attached to my back. Some call it a parachute. Looks like a bed sheet to me. Looks just as dangerous. Now think about for a moment the goals that are involved. So I'm about to jump out of a perfectly good plane. Now I've been wanting to do this for ages. So I'm really excited because this is progress towards or fulfillment of a goal. I'm also incredibly terrified. Now that's part of the fear cluster. What's fear? Threat. What is under threat when I jump out of a perfectly good plane? My life. Exactly. And my life is something that's relatively important in the scheme of things. It's kind of hard to function without it. (laughs) And then I'm also experiencing anger (laughs) because I'm white-knuckled to the side of the plane because of my fear. The buzzer's going off saying it's my turn and the guy behind me is going, hurry up! Now, why am I angry? What what is anger? Block goal. What's the goal being blocked? No, 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 because I'm blocking myself. What's the goal? Staying alive. (laughs) I'm perceiving this person as a threat to, I'm staying alive, therefore I'm angry because you're blocking my goal of staying alive. So in one moment, I'm experiencing excitement, terror and anger all at the same time. Now, if I am low in emotional intelligence, I would say something like, well, which one is it? In other words, I'm too black and white. Well, are you excited or are you terrified? Make up your mind. No, I'm actually all of them because there's three different stimuli acting on three different goals at the same time, therefore producing all of those emotions. Now, one of the things that I've found keeps us stuck is when we don't identify all of the emotions. Let me give you one really simple example of this. I was um, coaching an amazing, really capable senior leader out in the business world and she has a son who lives overseas. Son is, I think, 19-ish years old, not particularly good at organising himself. He was flying home for, he's doing uni over in America. He was flying home for the American summer, which was our winter, to spend three months with the family. Of course, his mum was really, really excited and had arranged her whole day so that um, she could take the day off work, go pick him up. She was really excited to see him. Um, and the next day, she was supposed to have a coaching appointment with me. But of course, I get a call earlier in the week saying, I'm really sorry, I have to postpone our session. My son has completely messed up. He left way too late, thought he was going to be fine, missed that plane, which means he missed his connecting flight, which means he's now not coming till the next day. And so, put off the coaching session for a week or two. When I get there, tell me the story. And, she, and we'd just been doing, we'd done a measure of emotional intelligence and we'd been talking about this all the time. And she said, I, I, named, I named the anger really well like because I knew I was frustrated because I'd done all of this organisation, I'd arranged my whole life and he went and just flippantly just stuffed the whole thing up. She used other words, but I won't describe that. Um, and so she's like, I'm really angry. But she said, even though, I, and we talked about the importance of naming, she said, even though I named my anger really clearly, I was still really stuck and was still just really edgy all day. What was going on? I'm like, okay, you named anger right. What else happened that day? Because it was the Wednesday her son was coming home. She was really excited to see her son that day. Now, what happened to the goal of seeing him that day? God, so what was the emotion she missed? She missed sadness. She got the anger bit right, and anger was like, and you know, she could walk into a meeting and go, I'm just really frustrated because of this, and it sounds powerful, especially when you're at a senior executive level. And, um, 
But she said, I didn't get unstuck. I was still not effective all day. And I said, yeah, you missed one. I said, that goal, as you said, of seeing your son that day, that was gone. You weren't getting that back. Now, even though you were, you'd get it the next day, you still wanted to see him on Wednesday, and you couldn't. So you were actually sad. You were like, oh, I wanted to see my boy. But because she didn't name all of the emotions present, she stayed stuck and didn't know why. Is this making sense? Quite often, again, this is where anger comes in a lot of the time. Anger appears around sadness. Anger also appears around betrayal. Now, betrayal by definition is when somebody uses the access they have to your life against you. Does that make sense? You give them access to your life. They have certain pieces of information about you and, then some, and somehow they use that access against you and turn on you. That's betrayal. And often one of our responses to betrayal is anger because like, this is an injustice. But what also sits under there is I feel hurt and wounded. In other words, you could get in there and when you were in there, you poked with some sharp implements. That hurts. And we often stay stuck because we're willing to say I'm really angry at them, but we're often not willing to admit that really, really hurt. And that's the vulnerable one. And there are a whole lot of those emotions around hurt, betrayed, sad, that the only effective way to process them actually involves tears. My eyes need to leak. If I could show you biochemically what happened in your body when you cried emotionally, you would want to do it all the time. Because the chemical composition of tears that you cry when you are sad are completely different to the tears you cry when you've got something in your eye or you get your contact lens stuck, or which I've done a few times, it's not fun. Um, but you, you have tears then, but they're a different chemical composition. When you're crying sad tears, your tears are full of stress hormones. And what is happening is your body is detoxing stress when you cry. We see in scripture that he counts our tears. See, t tears are an agent that is put in your body by God to help your heart to heal. And to the extent that you cooperate with that, you'll be okay. There was a wise mentor in my life at a really critical time that said to me, in each situation, there's a certain, and obviously negative, hurtful, painful situation, there's a certain number of tears you need to cry, and when you do, you'll be fine. So I remember um, a young girl when I was in youth ministry coming up to me and saying, um, yeah, her grandmother had died in the week before, and um, I said to you, hey, how are you doing? And she said, I'm not, I'm not doing so good. I said, well, what do you mean by not so good? She said, I just feel like I want to cry all the time. Now, I said it with more compassion than this, but what I said was, do it and you'll be fine. We had a slightly said, longer conversation than that, but the essence was it, do it and you'll be fine. She went away. I, next week, she came back and I said, how are you doing now? Um, and she said, you have no idea how much that helped me because I was fighting the natural processes, in my words, fighting the natural processes that were going on inside me. And of course, I feel conflicted when I do that. But when I, just cr when I cried when I need to, I was fine. And I remember, um, same church, I don't know, you may, may remember back then when um, 
it was a really horrible time. We buried a six-year-old who died of leukemia and that happened on the Saturday. And on the Sunday in this church, there's a room called the cry room. It has a you know, big glass thing and I was in that room using it in accordance with its stated purpose. Um, one Sunday morning, having a really good cry, and one of the guys in the church kind of walked in. And of course, I was the pastor and they're not used to seeing the pastor in the cry room crying their eyes out. And um, he goes, oh, geez, you're right. And I said, I'm actually fine. I just need to have a really good cry. And he looked at me like, well, I don't know who you are or what you just said, but good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, he had a slightly more compassion than that, but he had no grid for, I'm actually fine. Like the core, my, my, I'm rock solid at my core. God is still good. I know who I am. I know who God is, but I am devastated by this loss and I need to cry. What that whole series of events taught me was that crying is what you do to cope. It's not a sign that you're not coping. And this is where a whole lot of us have believed a whole lot of lies about if I cry, if I fall apart, well, I've just fallen apart and I've just lost it. Well, the only reason it feels that way is because you're fighting the natural processes of God. If you actually cooperated with it, go get your tissue box, or in my case, the beach towel, if it's a really significant one, because sometimes a box of tissues just doesn't cut it. You just need a big beach towel, and then you like burn it, throw it away afterwards, because that, that thing is never going to recover. <laughs> and just get it out. Sorry, tears are messy, right? <laughs> But it is detoxing your body of a whole lot of stuff. And how many of you, when you've ever had a good cry, you feel really cleansed and light? That's the idea. That's the way it's meant to be. Now, all of us are wired a little differently in terms of how much vulnerability we're comfortable with. And for some, crying, especially in front of people, feels like way too vulnerable. And I'm not going to say all of a sudden, everyone needs to hang out their dirty laundry in front of each other. What I am saying is we all need to find our safe places to actually do emotions because they are designed by God for a purpose. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made and when you cooperate with your design, your heart will heal. And sometimes we just need help identifying what is going on and why we're feeling what we're feeling. I remember walking, um, some of you will remember Ron Calmere. Um, I worked with him many years ago and he's been you know, a counsellor and a spiritual father to, and a friend to, to many um, in this room. And I remember before we worked together, I was out in the corporate world and I was feeling completely blocked on my destiny. I was um, working in the insurance industry. I knew I was called to ministry and had been in ministry and I'm doing this job that was boring and I hated it. And I was like, I walked into Ron and said, I won't actually repeat exactly what I said, but I'm just perpetually angry <laughs> words to that effect and he just said straight away okay well what do you feel blocked on I'm like the list is endless let me go and I just started to unpack the list and all he did was started to put my current situation in a longer framework of my destiny to focus on what God was doing in my life and preparing me for at that point in time and my anger went away it's probably a 45-minute conversation, completely shifted my emotional world because at that stage, he understood it and I didn't. So many times, well, I don't know why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. And I can sit there and tell you exactly why you're feeling what you're feeling. It's not particularly hard. Let's try that. Oh, my gosh. Because as soon as I understand why I'm feeling what I'm feeling, those emotions have a structure to it that we can start to systematically process and dismantle. And you don't have to stay stuck. 
Let me read one more scripture and then we're going to find a place to land. Psalm 77. I love this psalm. So just as I wind that up, if you want to dig further in that, that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. If that interests you, that's, what, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to be digging into a whole lot more. Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. Now, I want you to hear the emotional processing that is going on in this psalm because it gets pretty epic. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated. My spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favour again? Like, get this. This is this guy just emotionally going, Bleh. has his unfailing love vanished forever? You know, if someone got up the front at the beginning of church and said, let's just draw us all together for worship. You know what? I feel like God's unfailing love has just vanished forever. He's forgotten to show kindness. He's forgotten to show mercy. All right, let's worship the Lord. I'd get excommunicated. <laughs> like, it's like, what? Has God forgotten to be merciful? This is in the Bible, right? Has he in his anger withheld compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And so on we go. Now, if you follow that psalm through, the first nine verses are the writer of the psalm just going, Bleh. Now, where most Christian discipleship has taught us is just, just start at verse 10. In other words, th this is a good strategy. Verse 10 is an amazing strategy to remember the stuff that God has done in the past. Remember the testimonies. Like if you are struggling in areas of finance, remember the times when God has shown up and provided for you and just sit with the memory of that. It will do your heart the world of good. This is, this is really good counsel. And this is essentially where we get it from. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. I'll remember your miracles of long ago. And if you don't have any of your own miracles, go find someone else's. Go Google um, whatever condition that you're experiencing. Type that word and then type the word healed afterwards and start reading. You will be deeply encouraged. It will change your spirit. But here's the thing. That is good stuff. But I want to suggest the only reason that the psalmist got there at verse 10 genuinely is because of the raw emotional honesty of the first nine verses. Now, how many of us have been told, pardon the expression I'm about to say, leave your crap at the door and come in and worship God? Any, anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever sat there? I'm not going to die. What that teaches is people to suppress their heart, not to engage with it. 
And what you see here, and you see, if you want to see another one, you see it again in Psalm 102, where there is this raw emotional honesty of coming before God and going, God, I don't know where the heck you are right now. I feel like you're a million miles away. I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you've abandoned me and that you're not even looking for me. Now, if you're in any kind of hyper-faith, had any experience with any kind of hyper-faith stuff, that stuff will get you excommunicated. Because no, you don't confess that. You don't let that stuff come out of your mouth. But Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the truth, that word truth there is not speaking of doctrinal truth. It's actually speaking of you will be in touch with reality and you being actually engaged with and in touch with reality will be part of the process that sees you find freedom. So if I'm feeling angry and frustrated, pushing it away, trying to shove it over in the corner, one of the worst things you can do because that thing will come back and kick your butt right when you don't need it to. That's what suppressed emotions do. When you try and bury an emotion, you bury something that's alive and it will come back and kick your butt at just the time you don't need it. Whereas to get before God and actually pour your heart out to him as it is. You know, he is the most unoffendable person on the earth. At the end of the day, like the kind of offence that we're talking about right now comes out of insecurity. Yet someone says a bad word. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. That's just insecurity and immaturity. God is not insecure and God is not immature. He knows very much who he is. He's very comfortable in his own skin, even though he doesn't have skin. You know what I mean? He's very comfortable in who he is. And he is way harder to offend than we think. And in fact, Scripture tells us a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He will turn our mourning into dancing, but we actually have to engage with our mourning and bring it to him, not push it away. Are there days where we make choices? Of course. I'm just saying, when we make a go, you know what, I'm not going to let that emotion rule me today. I'm going to make a choice. Yes, of course, there are days like that. But we need to do that a whole lot less when we're actually genuinely emotionally authentic with what's going on in here. And when we can be that and know that God is right there, ready to meet you in it, then we can get unstuck. One of my, my dear friends over in the US, once we were having a conversation about kind of God's goodness and just his unoffendable nature. And one of the statements, I can't remember exactly how we came out with, was, um, okay, I'm feeling frustrated. God, can you meet me in my frustration? Rather than push my frustration aside and try and meet with God, God, can you meet me in my frustration? God, I'm scared. God, I'm sad. Can you meet me in that? God, I'm struggling. Can you meet me in my struggle? And the thing I've found time and time again is that the Spirit of God is deeply attracted to that vulnerability and that raw honesty because we're actually engaging with reality. We're not in denial. We're not in suppression. We're not in self-medication. We're actually engaged in reality. Now, where I want to land is for some of us on our journey, like as I've said many times before, if you've been longer than alive, longer than about 20 minutes, you've probably got some pain. That's just the nature of living in a fallen, busted up world. If you've been breathing longer than 20 minutes, you've probably got some pain. 
for some of us, we feel stuck because we haven't been able to fully identify exactly what's going on. And I know for some in the course of doing you know, Elijah House kind of stuff or in the course of you know, doing prayer ministry here, you've identified things. For others, you just kind of stuck it, I'm just angry. But the anger hasn't lifted because you haven't identified the more vulnerable emotions underneath that. And while the anger feels powerful, there's actually some tears that you need to cry in order for your heart to fully heal. Because you were hurt, you were wounded, you were betrayed, you were chucked aside. And what I want to pray for us is that we would be able to connect with and attach to those vulnerable emotions that need to come out and that we'd be able to cry the tears that need to be cried so that our heart can be healed. This is a game prayer, okay? This, this is when church gets messy. But hey, who needs clean clinical church anyway? I'm going to pray for us. And Pete, Dan, either, do you want to just, you know... Do your amazing thing that you do. And remember, music's a language of the heart. This is why we use music around ministry time, because we want to connect with hearts. It's not a manipulation thing. It's just creating an atmosphere where my heart can actually engage. So I just want to encourage you just to open your heart to God right now and you don't have to go anywhere you don't want to go. You're in complete control of your journey right now. And I know that I want to pray some stuff right now, but I don't want anyone to feel under any pressure to do anything they don't want to do here. You're very, you know, if you need to fall apart right here, right now, that is completely fine. We have a whole lot of people that would love to love on you and pray for you. For some, you've got some processing to go do and you need to go home and sit in your happy in your safe place. Um, and just process some stuff through before you're ready to connect and, you know, just about everything in between. Father, I want to ask right now, firstly, that a spirit of peace would just settle across every heart, that every heart would know that they're in a safe place right now. God, thank you for your promise that a bruised reed you will not break, a smouldering wick you will not snuff out. And that when we, when we come to you, you won't turn us away. When we bring our heart to you, you always treat it with absolute gentleness and kindness. It's a funny thing, as, a, as I've done prayer ministry with people, I've often watched when people bring kind of demonic baggage to the cross, Jesus gets quite militant with it. But when people bring their pain to the cross, I've always watched Jesus treat it very, very tenderly. It's like, um, it's like our pain is so, it, it, it's a precious treasure to Him when we actually bring it to Him. And He always treats it with kindness and gentleness. It, always, it just blows me away with His goodness when He does that. So God, I just want to release over every heart the knowledge that You're in a safe place. God, that You hold our hearts in Your hand and You long to bring love, to bring healing. God, where our hearts have experienced either absent or distorted love and we're confused. Father, would you be, bring your peace? 
where where some of us, we're just stuck in anger, but we haven't identified what's below, where we've been hurt, we've been betrayed, we've been misunderstood. We've felt thrown aside. God, I just ask that you would begin to touch those places with your healing power. Now, there's those in the room that, that just really need to cry whether it's now or whether it's somewhere in their own space where they feel safe. God, I just ask where those who have, have not been able to access some of those emotions, God, that you connect those back up and enable us to access those more vulnerable, wounded emotions so that the waves of healing that have been prophesied over us can touch the places where they need to touch and can touch deep. And again, I just want to speak hope over every wounded part of our heart, every part that feels sad, that feels hurt, that feels betrayed, that feels abandoned, that feels rejected. That when you bring that to Him, He won't turn you away. Because he's the one who defines what love is. Father, for those who have struggled to cry, I just pray connection so that that pain can be detoxed. Not that we, can, not that we be re-traumatized, but that we be detoxed of what's already in there. speak to emotions that have been buried alive and we say it's time to detox it's time to come out where parts of our hearts haven't had a voice haven't been able to express the pain we just release prophetically we release the voice back to those parts of your heart to be able to give voice to what is going on to be able to give voice to what has gone on in a way that brings healing Spirit, would you flow? Would you flow through us? We want to receive those waves of healing that have been prophesied. And just as we said last week, that as those dry bones, those wounded places start to come alive, the promise is then you will know that I am the Lord. In other words, we will know you. We will know your heart. We will know your character. We will know your power at so much a deeper level as that healing touches the deep places of our heart. I just want you, as you're ready in your own, in your own heart, to say, Jesus, I give you permission to touch those places. Jesus, give me as much understanding as I need so that I can cooperate with your healing power. that my heart is safe in your hands. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross so that we would have life and have it to the full. Just let your blood wash away every defilement. Let your blood heal every pain. And teach us to cooperate with how we're designed. 
need to go if you're done you're free to go but for some you might just need to kind of sit and soak or just let God do what he's doing um, I just want to give you permission to do that if you guys wouldn't mind just you know doing your thing a little longer that would be awesome but uh, as you're moving around just be sensitive to people in the room that might be doing business with God still and the ministry doesn't end here going as we go into the week. Bless you.